We are not in this house just your run-of-the-mill Christians. If you're taking notes, at New Point, we are passionately committed to following the way of Jesus. We see ourselves as apprentices to Jesus. We were where we are becoming like him. And so, you, you know, Josh alluded to this, you know, during communion, but, but, but you, may, um, you may notice this in even just some of our teaching strategy. It always comes back to Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's just a huge part of the culture of this house. We point, we anchor everything we do, everything we teach back to Jesus. So yeah, we'll spend time in the Old Testament. We'll talk about beautiful Old Testament stories, but we will always anchor it back to Jesus. We have a high emphasis on this. Jesus says himself, he says, if, if I be lifted up, remember when Jesus says this? He says, if I be lifted up, you know, I will draw all men unto myself. And so we get this, 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 this picture here of when, of when we magnify the name of Jesus, when we lift up the name of Jesus, when we make him the priority, uh, what we gather around, why we live our lives, that there is, there is something he has promised to do, and that is to gather people, to bring people unto himself as he is lifted up. All right, good morning. Good morning, and it's good to be back together this week. Uh, really excited to kick off a brand new teaching series called Building the House, uh, especially after uh, you know, last week's Vision Sunday, I, I was so encouraged by last Sunday. Uh, many of you uh, just expressed uh, your own excitement. I, I received emails, uh, some texts. I, I uh, got a phone call even. People just uh, sharing with me just how excited uh, they are about the, the, the future of our church, the vision. People just uh, really telling me, hey, Pastor, you know, we are all in. Like, this is our church family. We couldn't be more excited. And so uh, that, just like that vote of confidence, I appreciate it. Uh, and just, just optimistic right now, um, very optimistic about uh, where we are headed as a church and what these next several months, years are going to look like together. Uh, excited for the journey uh, that we're going to be on together. And the reason why I think it gives me optimism um, uh, especially is because of this new series that we're starting today. Uh, and so over the next several weeks, what we're going to be doing is looking at the different attributes and the different aspects of the culture that we really want to build here in this house, uh, the culture we want to build here at, at, at New Point. Um, we want to look at, at the things that we believe should distinguish us, the things that, that we believe should set us apart. We want to look at the things, the things that we want to be known for in our community, the things that we want to be known for in the spirit, the things we want to be known for in heaven. And, and so that is, you know, um, that's why I, I just believe that the time has come. Uh, I believe that it is, it is time for us to come back uh, to the things that should be so central to our lives. It's time for us to come back to the things that should be so central to this church. And so over the next several weeks, what we're really going to be doing is just revealing to you the bricks that we want to use to build this house, to build this church. Uh, if you were to think of our church as sort of a construction project, um, then, then what we're teaching on over the next several weeks would really be the materials that we want to use to build this church. And I'm just excited to be able to share that with you. How many of y'all know that there are just moments in your life where you have to put a stake in the ground? How many of y'all know that there are just moments in your life where you have to drive a stake in the ground, and this just serves as a declaration of who you are? Um, I really think that that's the kind of moment we're in. I think that's the moment that we're in as a church. Uh, it, it's a moment that I think is similar to what we see in Joshua, you know, that great leader of the people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua has a moment where he drives a stake in the ground. 
Uh, Joshua has a moment where he makes a declaration that is abundantly clear about who he is. And this is a very famous verse I want to show you uh, as we sort of start this series today. But I want you to see this declaration he makes about himself. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, he says this. He says, he says to, uh, to, to the other Israelites, he says, but if, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers uh, that served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And here it is right here, famous language. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And so you see in this moment, Joshua drive a stake in the ground. You see him make uh, an undeniable declaration about who he is. You see, Joshua knew what Moses knew. He knew that the people had to make a choice about God to either love him and serve him completely or to turn away from him to serve you know, their, uh, really themselves and their own ambitions. And so in this moment, we see Joshua driving that stake into the ground. We see him uh, really, really saying to these people, hey, if, 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 God, if serving God is, is undesirable to you, if there's something else you want to do, if there's something else that seems more desirable, then you go ahead and do that. You go do whatever you want. And then he says, but as for me and my house... Like, we're, we're going to serve the Lord. Even if nobody else does, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. I really think that, that uh, this series is a time where we're going to drive a stake into the ground. It's a, it's a time where, uh, you know, we are going to be reminded of the values of this house, our family values. And as I was thinking about the uniqueness of this specific church family, I began to think about the uniqueness of a family name and how much that tends to define people. And so what I want to I do as, as, as we get rolling here today is I want to really talk about what it means to have a family name. Um, you have a family name. I have a family name. My family name is Lombard, which, which apparently my last name means long beard, apparently. Now, perhaps... Perhaps there is, there is a calling on my life that I have yet to say yes to, you know, there, and, I, and I'm thinking about it, you know. I think about how amazing this could look the longer it gets, but um, apparently that is, that is what my name means. Um, I was thinking this week specifically about what it means to have the family name Lombard, and uh, some, of you, some of you know um, that this past Friday my grandfather passed away, and, uh, and so it's put me face to face with... Uh, just, just the legacy he left, the, the, uh, the impact he's had on my life and countless others, and um, it's just caused me to reflect on what does it mean to be a Lombard? What does it mean to be a Lombard in my, uh, in my generation? And, you know, I come from a family full of pastors, missionaries, worship leaders, you know, and so, it, you know, in some circles, our, 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 what it means to be a Lombard, it means nothing, you know, but in some circles, it, it means something. And so we just come, I come from this family of people who have just said yes to serving Jesus in, in ministry. And, um, and so growing up, being a Lombard meant that we were people who loved Jesus. You know, that's what people knew. That's what people assumed. And um, we were people who loved Jesus. We were people who were in ministry. We were leaders. We were the ones who were setting an example for other people. And, um, and so, you know, growing up, you know, people would hear my name, you know, in certain circles. They'd be like, oh, you're, 
your Mike's son or your, your Dell's grandson. You know, there was just, there was an assumption people would make about me just based on the family that I come from, right? They would assume that, that because your dad or your grandfather or your grandma, your mom, whoever it is, because, because of what we know about them, we assume that there are some things about you that are true as well. And, and so, you know, it put a little bit of pressure on, on me, honestly. It put a, tr- a lot of pressure on some of me and, me and my cousins, my brother, because in some ways, you know, it's hard to not feel the pressure to keep up appearances and to not mess up the family name uh, to a degree. Um, my dad, my uncles used to say that, that, uh, that as they were walking out the door growing up, grandma used to say, you know, don't forget that you're a Lombard. Um, you know, like that would, that would put some added pressure. You know, there's, there's like some, some, you know, pressure, but it's also, it's also true. She wanted them to understand, look, there are, there, there are things that are true about us that may not be true about other people. And one of the, one of the things grandma it was known for saying, she would say, Others may, but you may not. And, and it was her way of just, just communicating, look, like, like there, there are things we are known for. Uh, there are things that matter to us. There are values in this house that we have that, that may not be the same values in other, in other people's houses. And so don't forget who you are. Don't forget as you're walking out that door that you are a Lombard. And so a family name carries with it a certain identity. It also carries with it a certain expectation. And so my whole life, you know, um, whatever, whatever the Lombard family name meant, that was, that was spoken over me every day of my life, you know, uh, when, when my name was used. I mean, every day, whatever the Lombard family name meant, that, that was spoken over me. And, and now, as I've had my own kids, it's actually being spoken over my children uh, every day. They have that name, and it is being spoken over them. And so, you know, this is actually true of all of us, isn't it? Uh, it's true of all of us because we all have a family name. And, and some of us ha- have family names that we're, we're proud of. Some of us have family names that we're not proud of. Some of us have names we love. Others have, have names that mean long beard, you know. So, um, but my wife and I have tried to be really intentional in our home about what we speak over our kids. Because I want them to be known for the things that matter, you know. Um, and the truth is, is that there is an identity that each of my children are going to have to choose for themselves at some point in their life. They're going to have to choose an identity for themselves. And so my desire, you know, is that the identity that I speak over them, who I tell them we are as Lombards, who I tell them they are as my kids, uh, really becomes a runway for them to choose the true identity that Jesus has on their life. That I speak the right things over them, that we're known for the right things, that there is just, there's just something about being in our family, growing up with this family name, that, it, that, it, that is things that are true about us, things that we want to be known for, um, a reputation, uh, if, if you will. And so, um, in some ways, it, it was difficult to grow up and have people make assumptions about who I was without even having a conversation with me, without even sitting down and talking to me. They would assume, you know, this is, this is who you are, this is true of who you are, just because I know your family members, but in some ways, like, as I've gotten older, I've just, I've just come to cherish that. Uh, I, I've come to cherish just how beautiful that is to have assumptions made of me uh, for all the right reasons because they've met my family who have gone before me. And so uh, there is meaning attached to your family name. That's true. Good or bad, for better or worse, your name becomes something that you're, you're known for. And so I set that up, give you that background, because if you're taking notes, I want you to look at this. As a church, we too have a family name. We too have a family name. New Point is our family name. Uh, and so 
because we have a family name, there are certain things that are true about us. We've been brought together under the family name of New Point Church, and I've been wondering, you know, what meaning is attached to our family name? What meaning is attached to our family name? What do we want that name to mean, honestly? What do we want that name to mean? What do we, what do we want that name to be known for? Uh, what do we want people to think when they hear who our family is? You know? What assumptions do we want people to make about us because they know who our family is? They know, you know, where we belong. They know what our, you know, our, our church has a reputation. What do we want people to think and assume about us because of who our family is? And I, I just believe that there are some core things that have to exist in us. There, there are some core things that we have to be known for, some, some core things that have to exist within the culture of this church. And so I talked to you about how, you know, we, we want to be clear and certain over, over the next several weeks of the bricks that we want to use to really build the culture here at this church. And so I want to, I want to begin with a brick today. Really, really, really the primary thing, I, I think, that we should start with, and that is this, that, is, uh, that at our church, if you're taking notes, it is all about Jesus. At our church, it is all about Jesus. What uniquely distinguishes us at this church is that our lives are all about Jesus. Jesus isn't just a part of our lives. Listen to me. He is everything. He is everything. And that might seem to you like a strange place to start because I'm talking about what distinguishes us as a church because there are things that are just true of the church in general. And then there are things that are true about us. There's a personality that we have as a church. And you might think, man, that's a strange place to start because isn't this true of every church? Well, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's not. Not only is it not true of every church, but this isn't true of all of us. where we could say it's all about Jesus. I'm going to get to that in a minute, but look, at this church, just so you know, everything we do is centered around Jesus. Every decision or change in your life that we try to get you to make is centered around Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, famous scripture right here. Verses 1 through 2, the writer of Hebrews says this, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame, now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. So the author of Hebrews makes it clear here, right? There are just things that trip us up. There, 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 there are things that we become entangled by. There, 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 are, there's, there are weights that we, we carry around, you know, as, as Christians that make it very difficult to run the race. And he's saying, hey, let us, let us throw off everything that hinders. Let us throw off everything that, that, that trips us up. And let us, let us, do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Be focused on who he is. You know, um, how many of y'all love the beach? Anybody love the beach? How many of y'all are like my wife and the beach is just your happy place? Uh, man, my wife loves the beach so much. Um, and, and so it always makes me nervous when she's looking at like beachfront property, you know. I'm like, you know, you married a pastor, sweetheart, you know. So, um, so because my wife loves the beach so much, you know, when we can, 
uh, we like to vacation near the beach, you know, happy wife, happy life, right? So uh, we like to go see the beach. And one of the things I have experienced with the beach, even, even specifically this past summer when we were in Florida, um, is that when I'm at the beach and I, wa- I, and, I, and, I, and I walk out into the water in a straight line, it feels to me like I'm walking a straight line. And then, and then all of a sudden I turn around and, and I realize how much the water has, has moved me, right? You ever notice that? Uh, I, I had this, this time this past summer, you know, with the kids, we're going out there, and I, and I just went out by myself without the kids, you know, where you can kind of barely see my head, you know, uh, bobbing above the water, and, and I'm out there, and I, and I look back at the beach, and I'm like, okay, where are they, you know, and, and I realized they're like way down, you know, I didn't realize how much the current have, had moved me down the shoreline, um, had no idea that I was drifting quite a bit. It's amazing how without paying attention, without even knowing it's happening, how quickly you can drift, isn't it? It's true on the beach, but it's, it's absolutely true in life, how, how fast, how easy you can drift without even knowing that it is happening. And so I think what the writer of Hebrews wants us to know here is that when you put your eyes on the wrong thing, when you put your heart on the wrong thing, it doesn't take much for you to begin to drift. Two chapters earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, it, it, he says this, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Look, if you're taking notes, look at this with me. Wherever you have drifted, it's time to get your eyes back on Jesus. In this house, a huge part of our culture is that, is that we unashamedly just declare that it is all about Jesus here. But look, how do, you, how do you really build culture? So we can make declarations all we want, but really what we want to try to do is get this to be true of you in, in your lives, that you would live lives that would say, hey, it is all about Jesus here. He's not just a part of my life. He is everything a couple of summers ago, we actually taught through the entire book of, of Hebrews, and one of, the, one of the things that I repeated many, many times was, you know, we want Jesus to be the most important thing in your life. And so wherever you have drifted, it is time to get your eyes back on Jesus. I want to share with you a story of someone who, who did a pretty good job at doing that. It's a story found in the Gospel of Mark. It's actually found in three places in the Gospels. You'll find it in Matthew, I think, 16, and then there's a, an account in, in, in Luke as well. Um, but I'm going to use Mark's account here because I, it just gives some detail that I think is pretty, pretty incredible. It's a story of a woman who I believe, you know, knew and figured out how to get her eyes focused on Jesus. Mark 14, starting in verse 1, it says, It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. Okay, he, he was not liked. Jesus uh, is actually pretty popular in, 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 you know, in, in the city, but, but those who were religious leaders, chief priests, uh, they wanted him dead. And so um, in verse 2 it says, but not during the Passover celebration they agreed or people may riot because he was he's pretty popular. Meanwhile, verse 3, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. 
Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will, rem- will be remembered and discussed. So just so you know, we are actively trying to disciple you into people like this woman at this church. We are trying to build a church that is full of people like this. This is a pretty remarkable story, isn't it? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, actually. I think of the setting, I think of the environment, I think of everything that's surrounding what's going on. I think of the response of those who are watching, who see this, this act of worship, and what, what, what do they essentially say? They look at this woman, this, this act of worship, she breaks open this bottle of, of this alabaster jar of, of, of spikenard, is what they would have called it, and... Um, And they say, what a waste. What a waste. They become indignant. Like, we could have taken that and sold it and given the money to the poor. You know, this is like Judas, you know, be talking talking there in the background. Like, you probably wouldn't have given it to the poor, but, you know, it's it's that they're offended. Like, like who would waste something so expensive, so foolishly, on Jesus? Who would do something like that? Do you notice that there is something unbelievably radical and reckless in this woman in this story? You notice how she seems to have no regard for looking foolish in this moment. You notice that? She's not interested in pleasing others. She's not worried about who else is around or who else is is there, who's, who's watching. She's solely interested in worshiping Jesus. Solely interested in worshiping Jesus. And so the drama of this story only intensifies by the backdrop of that night. And that is that the chief priests are trying to figure out a way to arrest Jesus. Look, Jesus has been going around telling everybody that he is basically God. He's been making these claims. He's, 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 been, he's been going around doing some pretty incredible things and so claiming he's the Messiah. And so the chief priests, they want him arrested and ultimately they want him killed. And so that is the backdrop to this story. That's the backdrop to what's going on. The very people who want to arrest Jesus and kill Jesus uh, are, are watching. They're in this room as this woman walks in with one thing on her mind, and that one thing is Jesus. That one thing is Jesus. Now, it says that she brings this jar of very expensive perfume, the type of gift that would only be meant for a king by the way, and, and uh, not only does she open the jar, but the Bible here says she breaks it open. She breaks it open. So she doesn't just pour a little bit of, of this expensive, you know, possession that she has out on Jesus. She doesn't just give him some of it and, and, and keep the rest so that she can be a good steward. You know, that's, that's what the language we like to use. You'd be a good steward of what she has. But she breaks it open. She spills everything in this, in this jar on Jesus. 
In this story, we read that this perfume could have been sold for more than a year's wages, meaning that it was worth about 300 denarii. And so, translate that you know, to our culture today, that's, that's probably somewhere around forty dollars to $50,000. That's an awful lot. This woman brings a jar of perfume, and we, we struggle with that because we're going, you know, like, how can perfume ever be worth, you know, something like that? Well, well so in their, in their culture, this would have been maybe looked at as, as, a, as a type of investment that they, they could have made. And so especially for a woman in a male-dominant society, you know, where she is unable to really own land and things like that, as she would get older in age, needing to retire, unable to work like maybe she had. And uh, these, these, these possessions oftentimes would be viewed as, as, as a form of retirement where you would cash it in when it's needed and be able to live off the proceeds. And so, and so I mean, catch what is happening here. It's not a stretch to say that this woman was quite literally wasting her life at the feet of Jesus. Not a stretch. She's not holding anything back. She's taking what is most valuable to her and she's breaking it open and she's pouring it out on Jesus. Could you imagine having a conversation with this woman, honestly? I mean, there, there's like a handful of people that, that in, in, in Scripture, you know, if, if I could have a conversation with them, like I would, you know, when, when we all get to heaven, you know, what a day of rejoicing that will be. But uh, when we get to heaven, there's people we want to talk to. She's in my top five. Like, I, I want to know, like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like, like, what were you thinking in that moment? I wonder if her reply would have been something like, look, it's all about Jesus. My life, it is all about Jesus. N.T. Wright says this, he says, once you see who the son really is and the role he was always intended to play in God's plan, you won't want to go back to anything or anyone else. And so look, we're not, we're not just your run-of-the-mill Christians. You might be, but I'm just declaring that, okay? We are not in this house just your run-of-the-mill Christians. At, if you're taking notes, at New Point, we are passionately committed to following the way of Jesus. We see ourselves as apprentices to Jesus. We were where we are becoming like him. And so, you, you know, Josh alluded to this, you know, during communion, but, but, but you, may, um, you may notice this in even just some of our teaching strategy. It always comes back to Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's just a huge part of the culture of this house. We point, we anchor everything we do, everything we teach back to Jesus. So yeah, we'll spend time in the Old Testament. We'll talk about beautiful Old Testament stories but we will always anchor it back to Jesus. We have a high emphasis on this. Jesus says himself, he says, if, if I be lifted up, remember when Jesus says this? He says, if I be lifted up, you know, I will draw all men unto myself. And so we get this, 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 this picture here of when, of when we magnify the name of Jesus, when we lift up the name of Jesus, when we make him the priority uh, what we gather around, why we live our lives, that there is, there is something he has promised to do, and that is to gather people, to bring people unto himself as he is lifted up. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this, he says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? 
So I want you to catch some thoughts here. Like the woman who anointed Jesus with this very expensive perfume. This is who we are. We too are crazy enough about Jesus that we are willing to waste our life on him and for him. Like that's, th- th- these are the types of people we are trying to disciple you into. That you're crazy enough about Jesus. You're consumed enough with Jesus. He really is the center of your life. He really is the most important thing to you. That, that you too are willing to waste your life on Jesus. Give it away. Jesus, come and do whatever you want to do. Jesus is looking for some people who are willing to lay it down and live for him regardless of what they face. You know, as you, as you read the Gospels, you read Jesus' life, you read how he interacts with people, you know, the central invitation of Jesus was to come, to follow him, and to give him your allegiance. It's the central invitation to Jesus' ministry. Come, follow me, give me your allegiance. And so if you're taking notes, look at this with me. There is a deep conviction in our house that, what we, are, that, that we are called to be disciples of Jesus. We have a very simple conviction. We believe Jesus is who he said he is. And we believe that because he is who he says he is, that he calls us to deny ourselves. We believe that Jesus really is the resurrected Lord of human history, and that because of that, he invites all of us to reorient our lives to him. That's, that, that's what it looks like. We reorient our lives to Jesus. And so, look, I, I, I can just about guess that, and, and almost guarantee that there have been a number of sermons and messages and, and classes and programs that we've done here that have, that have felt so offensive at times and have confronted enough things in you to where you're like, oh, man, why, are they, why do they keep doing that? Look, a huge part of what we're trying to do here is to help you see what the way of Jesus is like and then to reorient your life to that, to sort of peg your life to the standard of Jesus, not to any other standard. Well, the problem is this, if you're taking notes, one of the greatest things we are facing in our lives and facing in this culture is that so many of us, even though we have given our yes to Jesus, we've also given our yes to so many other things. This, this, is, this, is, this is the problem. Even though we've offered our lives to Jesus, the truth is that we have offered our lives to so many other things as well. There was a survey about 15 years ago that was conducted of people who attend church in the U.S., the survey found that of those who attend church regularly, only 55% said that their faith affected the way that they live their life. 55% of those who attend church regularly, regularly, said that, their fa- that, said, um, said that their faith affected the way they live their life. That means that the other 45% that attended church regularly felt that their faith didn't affect their lives at all. Why would that be? Why would that be? Because even though they have said yes to Jesus, they have said yes to many other things as well. If you're taking notes, look at this, this important thought with me for the day. The power of covenant is not found in your yes. The power of covenant is found in your no. The power of covenant is not found in your yes. The power of covenant is found in your no. 
We have come into a covenant relationship with Jesus. He has established a new covenant in his blood. We are in a covenant relationship with Jesus. The power of a covenant is not in your yes. It is found in your no. A covenant is formed on the basis of an an agreement, isn't it? That agreement is not formed just by what the two parties are willing to say yes to. That that agreement is formed by what those two parties are going to also say no to. What they're they're willing to not do. What they're they're not going to do any longer. I mean, just, just a practical example here, but, you know, the power of my covenant with my wife is not in my yes. You understand that? Like, like my yes matters for sure. It, I mean, I think it matters to her that I said yes. It matters, sure matters to me that she said yes, you know. But, but the power of our covenant is not just in our yes. The power of my covenant with her is in the people and the things I've said no to so that I can say yes to her. The power of my yes to my wife is that it is accompanied with a no that actually matters. We're not just saying yes to each other. We are, but we're also saying no to all these other things at the same time. You see, so many of us have said yes to Jesus. The problem is is that we have said yes to many other things as well. Yes to many other allegiances. Yes to many other ideals, many other identities. Yes to culture, yes to a political identity or a political preference, yes to consumerism, yes to all of these false masters, all of these false ideas. We've said yes to many other things. And, and so then, then what happens is we're, we're, we're sitting here and we're trying to figure out why our faith in Jesus doesn't seem to have you know, transformative power over the things that we're walking through. Why is it that I'm like I'm a Christian, and, 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 yet, and yet it just seems so powerless. It just seems like I'm struggling with all these other things. Could it be because we've been saying yes to other things for far too long? Look, it's all about Jesus or it's not. This might actually be the crisis of our generation in the church. Jesus is, in fact, calling us. No doubt. He is calling us. He is calling us back And he is saying this to you, and he is saying this to me, come and give me your allegiance. Come and give me your allegiance. I wonder, have you maybe picked the wrong allegiance? Or have you maybe picked, at times, multiple allegiances? I look out sometimes, I spend as little time as possible on social media, and a lot of times when I'm on there, it seems to me like there are a lot of people who have a greater allegiance to their national identity and political ideology than they do to Jesus. Like, like it's all about him. All about him. You guys can come on up. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says this. He, he, says, to, he says, come to me. Listen to me. Listen to this. He says, Jesus says, he says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened and I will give you, what's the word? How many of y'all could use some rest? Anybody? How many of you, like, you read scripture like this, you're like, man, I, I could sure go for some rest. Like, that would be great. We're not just talking, we're not talking spiritual rest here, right? We're talking about rest for our souls. Like, have you ever just felt like, like, there's just, there's just, like, too much, and, it, like, like, inside of you going on, and, 
This idea of rest sounds, sounds wonderful, and Jesus says, says, come to me if you're weary, if you're burdened, if you're, if you're worn out, if you're burned out, like, I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So what's happening here in Matthew 11 is Jesus is doing a very rabbinical thing. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He's doing a very rabbinical thing here where he says to those who are listening, I have a yoke. I have a yoke. And those who he is speaking to in the first century would have understood this uh, far better than us. Like There, there is, there is a, a literal yoke, and then there is a, a teacher's yoke. A literal yoke would be, have been an agricultural device. That was, that was put around the necks of two oxen so that they would plow in the same direction. You know, they, like, you don't want the, the, the oxen to start out going in the same direction and then one starts to veer off. You gotta keep your rows straight, right? This, this preaches okay in Iowa, doesn't it? Okay. But this is what's going on. They would have understood this. It was, it was, it was a, an agricultural device. And... So you place this yoke around their necks, it keeps them bound to each other. It keeps them going in the same direction. And so Jesus is using this reference. He's telling them, look, I have a yoke. I have a yoke. A teacher's yoke was, was really their way of life. It was their practices. And he's saying, I've, I've got a yoke. I've got a yoke. And what he's doing here is he's acknowledging that there is a yoke that they have been burdened with that is making them weary, that there is something around their necks that is just not easy to live out. And, you know, we, we understand this, that when we read the New Testament, that the yoke that he's referring to is the, the yoke of the, of, the, of the old covenant, the, the, the yoke of the law, of having to be perfect, of having to live up to, you know, all 600-some laws that were mentioned in the law. And Jesus comes along and says, look, 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 are you weary? Are you tired? Are you burdened? You sure seem worn out. You sure seem burned out. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. And that's usually where we stop, right? That's usually, we read these scriptures, that's usually where we stop. And we're like, man, Jesus, he's so good. Like, man, man, he's, he's willing to, 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 to replace this, this heavy burden, this heavy yoke, and, and offer us like, like, like something that's so much better, a, a lighter uh, weight around our necks. But, but, you can at times miss what's, what else is going on here. I think that Jesus is making it clear that we are all yoked to something. And that if you're going to take on Jesus' yoke, then you're going to have to take off any other yoke that you have already put on. And I think the reason why so many people are struggling in their faith, the reason why many young Christians are coming to a crisis of conviction or a crisis of faith is because they don't realize that they have yoked themselves to two masters. The yoke of Jesus is going one way and the yoke of this culture is going the other way. And on the inside, many of us are being torn apart because we have given ourselves to two allegiances. We are either seeking first the kingdom of God or we are seeking the kingdom of ourselves. And I don't know, 
look, it's probably easier to pastor a church full of people who, who want to just be cultural Christians. It's probably easier to build a church like that, I guess. Maybe. Because it's a lot harder to actually be a disciple of Jesus. It's a lot harder to say, look, like, like whatever you want, my life, I'm going to waste my life at your feet. It, it, it's, it's a whole nother, nother ball game. It's a whole nother level when, you're, when, when you make the declaration about your life that it is all about Jesus. It's a whole lot easier to just, to just sort of be yoked to many other things. You cannot serve two masters and you cannot have two yokes. If you're looking uh, to take notes today, you cannot give your heart to Jesus and give your heart to culture at the same time. It just doesn't work, you know? It just doesn't work. It's not life-giving. It's hollow. It's empty when you try to do it. I've tried this. Anybody else? You tried this? It just doesn't work. It has, it has all the, the makings of, of what should work, and yet, and yet it's hollow. It's empty. It just, it just has no power. You can't give your heart to Jesus and give your heart to culture at the same time. Look, central to the teachings of Jesus, as you read in the Gospels, was repentance. Central to his teachings he would say, repent, for the kingdom of, 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 of heaven has come near to you, right? He would, he would say this multiple times, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has, 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 has come near to you. And as first century Christians, we have taken the word repentance and we've turned it into a dirty word. We just have, we stay away from it, but it's, it's actually a really beautiful word. Repentance isn't about how guilty you can feel or how bad you can feel, or how much emotion you can rise up in your heart so you can demonstrate a certain level of shame in your life. If this is our understanding of repentance, then no wonder we don't want anything to do with it because this is a deeply flawed view of repentance. Central to the invitation of Jesus is something I think we may have missed along the way. Something that maybe we have abandoned along the way because of our disdain maybe for this idea of repentance and what that word feels like to a lot of us. Central to the invitation of Jesus is an invitation to turn from a different yoke and to become yoked with Christ for the rest of our lives and to find rest for our souls. The invitation of Jesus is like, hey, who are you going to be yoked to? It is this invitation to turn away from anything else that we have, we have you know, bound ourselves to, that we've been, uh, uh, had an allegiance towards. It's an invitation to turn away from those things and to turn to him, to come to him and to find, actually, actually find rest for our souls. But look, but look you, can, you can be a professing Christian and not have rest for your soul. You can be a professing Christian and struggle with all kinds of things, like have, have, have all kinds of things just unsettled in your spirit because you're still yoked to things you shouldn't be yoked to. Yeah. 
Man, I just love Jesus, guys. Like, I just love Jesus. And I just want you to love him too. And I want you to not just say it, I want you to live it. And I want us to be a house that, that actually loves Jesus the right way. I want us to love Jesus in such a way that it compels people to want what we have. It's, it's super attractive. It's, 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 I can't, you know, tell me about, tell me about who this Jesus person is. I want to know about it. As I close here, you know, the Apostle Paul, he writes to the church in Colossae and he tells them about who Jesus is. Because this church was really set up in a time where, similar to like we read about in 1 John, where they were dealing with many other, you know, sort of false ideas of Jesus that were, you know, inundating the church. There, there were the Gnostics, were, we talked about in, in 1 John, but they were a huge part of what was going on in the church in Colossae. And, and, and so the Apostle Paul is, is, is writing to them, saying, you know, you know don't, don't, don't believe the things you've heard. Stay away from these false teachings that you're hearing. Here is who Jesus is. He begins to define who Jesus is. Many of them, what was really going on in, in, in the church in Colossae is that they were, they were essentially devaluing Jesus. They, they, they still had value for him, but they didn't have the same value that they once had. Right? So they were, they were essentially taking Jesus and moving him down a little bit. And, and they began to come up with this idea that there were, there, there were multiple intermediaries that God used to, you know, to, to, to bring uh, the forgiveness of sins to the world and, and all of this. And so Jesus was one of many. And it's highly problematic. And so Paul writes to the church in Colossae and he says this in, 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 in Colossians 1 verse 15. He says, he says hey, to anybody who's listening out there, those of you who are getting it wrong, those of you who think Jesus is this, let me tell you who he is. First, he is the image of the invisible God. And so if you want to know what God looks like, he's saying, look at Jesus. And some of you, like, like some, some of the barrier to your, to your relationship with God has been, has been your, your inability to, to really understand who God is. And you peg the, the character and nature of God to some stories you read in the Old Testament but the way we understand who God is is through scriptures like this, that he is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We understand who the God of the Old Testament is only through Jesus. Look, he says he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Paul's explaining who Jesus is. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's, 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 he's a big deal, right? 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Listen, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul is saying there is no one higher, no one better, no one greater than Jesus. He is not just one of many. He is the way. He is the only one. And so in verse 19, Paul says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is why we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. God made all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. In verse 20, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. This is what he looks like. And he's worth our allegiance. He's worth it all. He's worth it all. Would you stand with me here this morning? I want to just ask a couple questions. You can close your eyes for a moment. I want you to just take a minute here with me. And I want you just to ask yourself, is it possible that you have yoked yourself to something other than Jesus? Is it possible that there are other things or that there are many other things? And I wonder, is it time is it time for you to make your life all about Jesus? And if you're here today, every head bowed in this room, eyes closed, and you would just admit to me, you'd say, Pastor Jordan, there are other things that, that, that have had my allegiance. There are other things that I have been more focused on. There are other things that I have been yoked to. And this is a day where you just, you just want to make your life all about Jesus. Could I just see your hand here today? Could I just pray with you? Could I just encourage you in prayer today? Look, Look, this is, this is true of so many people. I mean, your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed in here, but this is true of many people in this room right now. And so God, we come before you in Jesus' name. I pray that you would break every yoke right now, God. Break every yoke that has set itself up against Jesus Christ in this place right now. Lord, I ask for freedom. Lord, I pray that you would help us come back to the thing that matters most. I pray you'd help us come back to our first love, I pray you'd help us come back to who you really are. Lord, I pray for a radical reorienting of our lives around you. I pray that this would not be something that we would just negotiate away because we're busy and we got other things to do, we got other places to be, but Lord, I pray that you would sit at the center of our life, that we wouldn't just be nominal Christians, people who are just sort of run of the mill, but that we would be followers in the way of Jesus. We would order our lives around you and your teachings and who you, who you say you are, oh God. Lord, I come, I pray that you would come and just do something sweet in this house. I pray that, that this moment would move beyond just a time of prayer at the end of a sermon, but I pray that it would, it would move out of this place with us, that there would, be, there would be thoughts, Holy Spirit, you would continue to bring up in us as we walk away from here today. As we go on with our lives, I pray you would continue to bring us back face to face with this reality that there are other things at times that we, that we are more loyal to than we are to King Jesus. And so we worship you today, God. I pray for a radical reorienting of our lives and our priorities, and may we come and give you all of who we are. I pray that in this house, it would be true of us, that it is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus, and it will always be all about Jesus. Amen.